0: Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me as usual is Jimmy Hoover. Jimmy, it's a historic day.
1: Yes, just moments ago, the Senate confirmed D.C. Circuit Judge Katanji Brown Jackson to become the 116th justice on the Supreme Court in a 53 to 47 vote. As you say, a very historic day. She's the first African-American woman to join the Supreme Court, the first former Federal public defender, and she will take the bench and start her work after Justice Stephen Breyer retires at the end of the current term. But of course, everybody already knows this. <laughs> but nevertheless, it is now official.
0: That's right, and 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 it was officially bipartisan, correct?
1: It was officially bipartisan. She lost a vote in Lindsey Graham that she had won um, in her D.C. Circuit confirmation. But she picked up another vote um, uh, from Senator Mitt Romney of Utah. So that Romney's vote plus Collins in Maine and Murkowski in uh, Alaska means that this is officially a bipartisan vote, even if it is only three Republican votes signing on to her confirmation. But that is what passes for bipartisanship on today's Capitol Hill. You know, Natalie, I was watching Jeopardy the other night, and one of the clues was this justice was confirmed to the Supreme Court in 1981 in a 99 to 0 vote and I was just like gobsmacked at how far we've come from that I mean that is just literally unthinkable these days
0: and that was a justice
1: Sandra Day O'Connor first uh, female justice confirmed. To the Supreme Court, um, ninety-nine to zero. Obviously, uh, not that one hundred to zero. There was a just. There was a senator missing in that vote. Apparently, uh, I don't believe it was Senator Rand Paul, although he was missing from the chamber for about a good twelve to fifteen minutes uh, this afternoon. He was the last one to cast his no vote and finally make that vote count official. But there was a moment there where the whole nation was waiting on Rand
0: to our congressional reporter and all congressional reporters. I would like a story as to where he was during those 15 minutes. (laughs) Personally, I'd like to know. Um, But yes, so historic day, congratulations to Justice Jackson. Um, I'm sure we'll be talking more about her upcoming addition to the bench. Um, But for now, let's turn to what happened at the court this week. On Monday, the Supreme Court dropped an opinion in Thompson v. Clark that provides a broader path for those pursuing malicious prosecution cases. This is a case that has been carefully watched by Access to Justice Advocates. Um, I'm pleased to bring in senior reporter Marco Poggio to kind of break down the potential impacts of this decision. Welcome, Marco. How's it going?
2: Pretty good. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you. So kind of what was the big decision that came down on Monday, just in, in, in kind of brief few
2: words. Yeah. So the big takeaway of this decision is that it, it enlarges the pool of uh, potential plaintiffs in malicious prosecution uh, lawsuits. Uh, so before this decision, um, in uh, more than half of the circuits around the country, uh, uh, former criminal defendants that wanted to sue their arresting officers over uh, constitutional violations had to basically uh, prove that uh, their criminal cases, the underlying cases, ended with their innocence. So they had to uh, show the court that They were actually innocent, which is really something rare in the American justice system. So now, with the with this decision, the justices said, "No, uh, you don't. uh, This doesn't make any sense. You don't have to prove uh, your innocence. You just have to uh, show that your conviction uh, that your cases ended uh, without a conviction."
1: So I can totally see how that, as you say, would enlarge the pool of people that would be able to sue their arresting officers, but. Let's go from the big takeaway and kind of zero down in on this particular case. So who, what, what were the facts that led to the Supreme Court's ruling? These cases uh, began in 2014 when
2: uh, Larry Thompson uh, is a Navy veteran and a postal worker. He was arrested at his home in Brooklyn. And the cops basically broke into his house. He refused; they didn't have a warrant, and he refused to let them in. And they were responding to a, a, a call made by his sister-in-law, uh, who said that he was basically abusing his uh, weak old daughter. Then it turned out that uh, those allegations were false, and that the sister-in-law was uh, actually suffering from mental illness. But regardless, uh, Thompson was arrested, and, and then uh, he. Uh, actually appeared uh, for an arraignment in court. Um, So then he was, uh, you know, he was um, uh, confined uh, in a cell. And uh, after the prosecutors dropped the charges against him, they had charged him with uh, resisting arrest and obstructing governmental administration. They dropped the charges and he said, okay, I want to sue my officers, the officers that arrested me. So he uh, filed a suit in federal, in federal court And uh, one of the claims that he brought was malicious prosecution. Um, The uh, district judge at the time on the case was uh, Jack Weinstein, who died in June, by the way, I was 99 years old. Uh, Judge Weinstein said uh, basically dropped the malicious uh, prosecution claim uh, from the lawsuit. And uh, and he was really reluctant to do that, uh, but uh, he said, "I have to do it. I have to follow the second circuit uh, um, precedent, which uh, says that you need to show your your, your innocence in, in the underlying case." Um, what's important to understand here is that when prosecutors dropped the charges against Thompson, they didn't give a, a, an explanation of why they were doing that. They just said, "In the inter- in the interest of justice, we're just gonna drop." this case. So that didn't count as a proof of innocence for him. So that's how uh, basically the the, the, the the case originated. So he uh, escalated that to the Second Circuit. The Second Circuit said, no, well, we have to respect our own precedent. And so that, um, that fight paved the way for the petition to the Supreme Court.
0: And can you tell us a little bit about how and why the circuits were split on this? Uh, Because my understanding was that there was a Supreme Court case that kind of touched on this issue um, a few decades back.
2: Yeah, so uh, in 1994, uh, the Supreme Court ruled in uh, Hack v. Humphrey and uh, basically said that uh, a defendant that want to sue uh, uh, government officials under Section 1983 of Title 42 of the U.S. Code, uh, they had to show that uh, their uh, criminal cases at uh, basically ended in a way that uh, ended in their favor, uh, basically. But they didn't specify what that meant. They just said to avoid uh, parallel proceedings like you are suing your officers while at the same time you're still defending a criminal case. To avoid that, they said you need to first uh, get to an end of your criminal case and it has to end in a way that it's in your favor before you can turn around and sue. So after that decision, uh, the circuits adopted different um, different standards, different interpretation of that. And uh, seven circuits sort of emerged with this really strict Uh, 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 requirement, which uh, includes that you have to show that you were innocent. And uh, the Second Circuit was one of those uh, seven circuits.
1: Right. And and, and this, you mentioned, comes up under, you know, Section 1983, the, the civil rights law that provides, you know, plaintiffs with an avenue to sue state officials acting under color of law for these constitutional rights violations. And I was kind of struck by you know, the Supreme Court, this particular Supreme Court, doesn't often, you know, uh, expand the rights under Section 1983 and that this one was an interesting one that, in fact, does that and allows, as you say, more people to bring these types of claims. So tell us a little bit about how the justices broke down in this decision and whether there was any dissents.
2: This was a 63 uh, vote in favor of Thompson, and uh, the decision... Uh, was delivered by uh, uh, Justice Kavanaugh in an opinion. And uh, the justices said that they basically had to look at the law, common law, as it was in 1871 when Section 1983 was, uh, was enacted. And uh, they had to look at the most, uh, uh, the most analogous uh, tort law, uh, to malicious persecution, so they went to look and they basically did a survey of common law across the United States, you know, common law, state law, and they saw that uh, in pretty much all jurisdictions except Rhode Island, um, you never were required to show a proof of innocence to bring this, uh, this type of tort, malicious persecution. Um, so then uh, they said, okay, so if you didn't have to do it then, why would we have to do it now? So they basically uh, really embraced that uh, sort of uh, jurisprudence. And they said, we are, we are going to make that the, the rule for today.
0: Let's talk a little bit about what kind of impact this decision will have. Um, you know, you mentioned it, it kind of broadens the pool, but I know we've spoken in the past about how difficult it is to bring suits against law enforcement because of qualified immunity. Um, just how big of a doorway does this open?
2: Well, I talked to a number of lawyers uh, and scholars, and what I'm hearing is that uh, this decision, yes, it really uh, expands uh, the potential um, eligibility for bringing a claim uh, like malicious malicious prosecution in the federal court, but that doesn't necessarily translate into a wave of lawsuits. So they were pretty clear that many of them didn't expect that the decision will trigger uh, a huge wave of, of lawsuits in, for malicious prosecution. The reason for that is that there are existing barriers to bring lawsuits like that. I mean, these are not really uh, easy fights to win. You know, you have to, first of all, um, you basically have to prove that you were arrested uh, without probable cause, which is a high bar. Uh, so, you know, you need to, when you, when you file a lawsuit, you need to, uh, allege a claim, you have to state a claim. So a judge might stop you uh, there and be like, no, actually you don't have, uh, you, you don't have the, the evidence to back it up. Um, so that's, that's a, that's a barrier. Another barrier that I heard about was, that um, that there is a stigma still associated with, uh, being a former criminal defendant, you know, so you, you, uh, regardless of, um, Uh, The merits that the the, uh, regardless of the merits of the charges against you and the case against you, even if it was dismissed, there's still a stigma, right? So you're a former former criminal defendant, you go to federal court, uh, it's not easy to sue like a government official. Right. So there's that. And then, of course, uh, the big big obstacle uh, qualified immunity. Uh, and that's something that actually um, Justice Kavanaugh acknowledged in uh, in the decision. He said, well, uh, officers are still protected by qualified immunity. And also, uh, you still have that um, high burden to meet, uh, to show that the officers acted without probable cause. But that's not an easy one.
0: So is this kind of a, a bit of a nothing burger for, for the access to this community? Or, or, or what are you hearing from from folks?
2: Well, um What I'm hearing is that if you want to bring a suit for malicious persecution, this decision will probably make it more likely that you would prevail. Um, So it is is a consequential decision, and if you consider that uh, more than half of the circuits adopted the strange requirement for innocence, that now you don't have anymore. That means that uh, practically now the entire country, you have courts where you can bring these suits. Uh, but one thing is to bring a suit and another, another thing is to uh, go past the, uh, uh, you know, uh, motion to dismiss phase and, 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 and go forward to trial. So it's not a slam dunk, that's what I'm trying to say.
0: Marco, thanks so much. This has been a great conversation.
2: Thank you so much for having me, it was fun.
1: Well, that was great chatting with Marco. So I want to turn to another decision at the Supreme Court this week. This one on the shadow docket. So we've seen a number of shadow docket rulings in some pretty big policy cases this term. And this one is no different. So the case is called Louisiana versus American Rivers. And on Wednesday morning at around 9 a.m., which is kind of an unusual time for these orders to come out, we got a ruling from the Supreme Court that reinstated a Trump-era rule that makes it harder for states and tribes to block infrastructure projects under the Clean Water Act. It was a decision that came out in favor of Republican states and industry groups that were defending the rule, which at this point, the Biden administration has yet to replace. So what it does is it reinstates that rule, effectively making it easier for industry to create these big infrastructure projects like pipelines.
0: So as with most emergency docket rulings, uh, we don't really get a reasoning for the majority opinion in this one. Um, But Jimmy, there was a dissent. Can you kind of walk us through that one?
1: Yeah, so Justice Elena Kagan writes a dissent, as she's done before in, in a lot of recent shadow docket cases, in which she basically kind of rehashes some of her grievances with how the court handles these cases on the court's emergency or shadow docket. And basically, she says is, you know, the Supreme Court has standards for when it gives this type of emergency relief, and it's not it's not just that a party has to be likely to prevail on the merits, you know, it also has to show how it's going to face irreparable harm in the absence of the court's action. So here she says, basically, this is re- reinstating a, a rule that was vacated five months ago by a district court, and... And according to Kagan, the the, the parties, the, the Republican states and the industry groups that are seeking to have it reinstated haven't shown with any specificity about, you know, which projects are going to be kind of hampered by, you know, the the continued uh, uh, vacature of this rule. Um, and in fact, she says, you know, before this rule was adopted during the Trump era, this was the regulatory regime that existed for 50 years. So she's basically saying that this is the status quo at this point and they haven't met that High bar of, you know, irreparable harm. And that this is just another instance of the court treating its emergency docket as kind of like a, a shortened, abridged merits docket where they don't have the benefit of full briefing or oral argument. These are all issues that we've talked about on the podcast before that have gotten so much scrutiny in recent years, Natalie.
0: Now, this was a pretty big order this week, you know, in a big Clean Water Act case, big statements being made about, um, the shadow docket or emergency docket, um, but I think it also garnered a lot of spotlight for who joined Kagan in her dissent.
1: Yeah, it's funny. So we use the the terms kind of shadow docket and emergency docket interchangeably, and in this dissent, Kagan uses the term emergency docket, and I suspect that that's because one of the people that joined her her dissent was not only you know Breyer and Sotomayor who've joined her before, but this time it was actually Chief Justice Roberts who signed his name onto dissent and maybe opted for the more kind of neutral term of emergency docket. But those criticisms were there nonetheless. So I think why that's significant is that, you know, Chief Justice Roberts has been on the dissenting side of some of these five to four shadow docket orders before, in particular in the September abortion case, when the court allowed that Texas, you know, abortion ban to take effect, Chief Roberts was in the dissent. But notably, he did not join Kagan's dissent in that case in which she was basically making all those same arguments about why the, the majority was abusing the shadow docket. Instead, he wrote his own dissent. Now, this time, Roberts is joining you know, her criticisms of how the court is handling the cases on its emergency or shadow docket. You know, Call it what you want. But that is significant in that it, it highlights that there's this kind of burgeoning five to four split. Not just on on how these cases should be decided, but how the court should be treating cases that come to it in an emergency posture.
0: Yeah, I think that was a big statement being made by the chief justice to to kind of put his name on on that dissent this week. Um, so it'll be interesting to see you know how things kind of keep playing out as as this issue, which like like you said, is it's been kind of a hot topic, hot button. We've certainly talked about it quite a bit, um, and I'm sure we'll be talking about it some more. Um, But kind of moving along, uh, it was not the only big statement from uh, a justice uh, this week. Um, On Monday, we also heard from Justice Amy Coney Barrett, uh, who spoke at the Reagan Presidential Library. Jimmy, I understand you were tuning in. Um, Kind of talk us through what she said.
1: It was a really interesting speech. She, so she's, I don't believe she's given very many speeches since she was confirmed to the court in 2020, maybe like one or two, um, if that. And this one was a pretty, you know, wide-ranging conversation um, with the, the the Reagan Library about everything about the intense media scrutiny that comes with being a justice to how the pandemic made her transition to the high court a little easier. So on the first point, she basically goes and talks about, you know, some of the lengths she went to, to like dodged the media vans that were trying to like take pictures of her after justice ruth bader ginsburg died she tells this kind of funny story about you know she was going to church and there was a like a like a black van with like photographers in it that were trying to kind of get that money shot of her coming out of the church because that was kind of an issue um or at least that was portrayed as an issue by the media um during those times And she says she kind of like uses an escape door at the church and finds herself in the priest's like private garden and like jumps a fence and <laughs> finally manages to, st- it <laughs> was interesting. Yeah, no, it's, it was an interesting story. Um, and she also talks about, you know, how the pandemic has, has again, made that transition a little easier just because, you know, this is something that I have wondered about. And I've written a couple of stories, like after, I think, Gorsuch and maybe Kavanaugh joined the bench. Like, you know, I, I think that was that was before the pandemic. So I was able to go to court to kind of see, you know, how they would, act in open court and you know some of the i think gorsuch was a little bit more aggressive coming out of the gate in his questioning and kavanaugh was a little bit more reticent just coming on the heels of this very you know uh kind of bitter confirmation fight amy Coney barrett says i didn't have to deal with any of that because you know it was it was pandemic era and we had this telephonic format where we had like specific times to ask questions designated questioning time. And so she says, I didn't have to worry about like stepping on a senior colleague's toes or, or maybe not even being vocal enough. So she definitely appreciated that. Now, okay, so I want to get to the kind of the, the big meat of her speech. And that is when she's asked about um, the court's legitimacy and how the court can kind of preserve its legitimacy. This is something we've talked about, Natalie, a bunch. And she had a really interesting reaction. So instead of really saying, you know, the court should do X, Y, or Z. She kind of flips it around and says, you know, maybe it's a problem, you know, of Americans who are basically coming to these knee-jerk reactions after seeing a particular case that they don't like. And she says, I think I would urge all engaged and interested Americans to read the opinions. And here's a here's a clip where she kind of goes into a little bit more detail about why that is.
0: It's required. And so I guess I would say that it's, perfectly fair game to say that you dislike the results of a case. It's also perfectly fair game to say that the court got it wrong. But I think if you're going to make the latter claim that the court got it wrong, you have to engage with the court's reasoning first. And I think you should read the opinion and see, well, does this read like something that was purely results-driven and designed to impose the policy preferences of the majority? or does this read like it actually is an honest effort, a persuasive effort even if one you ultimately don't agree with, to determine what the constitution and precedent requires, you know, as applied to a particular problem at hand.
1: So Natalie, some online commentators were quick to point out that there's a little bit of irony here because, you know, just a few days later, she is in this five justice majority in this shadow docket ruling in which there is no opinion. So that's been kind of one of the criticisms of the shadow docket, that they are not explaining their decisions carefully enough. I don't know. What do you make of all that?
0: I kind of hope that maybe she takes those words she spoke at, at the at the library uh, to heart and, and maybe makes a push for, for adding some opinions to these emergency docket rulings. You know, um, I think I'd like to see that. I think a couple of uh, a number of folks would like to see that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that the criticism hasn't fallen entirely on deaf ears. I think this term in particular, you may be seeing some at least small, moderate effort to ameliorate those concerns. I know that they pushed you know, a, a, a death penalty case involving some kind of thorny issues um, for religious rights in the execution chamber. They pushed that one basically to the merits docket, and that was a decision that we had recently talked about. And they I heard so. oral arguments in that case as well. And, and that's something that you saw that in the Biden vaccine case. So maybe that's one of the ways in which they're kind of responding to some of this criticism is they're saying, okay, we're going to look for moments when, you know, we can kind of remove this emergency timeline and we can take a little bit more time with it. Or if if, if that's impossible, we're still going to like hold oral arguments just to, and, 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 and explain our reasoning, like you say, Natalie, in a, in a decision. And maybe that's one way to do it. But, you know, as we saw this week, that's that's not going to be the case every time.
0: Yeah. And to be fair, they, they I have, I feel that they have taken a bit of an extra effort sometimes to add some reasoning to emergency docket rulings that get a lot of attention. It didn't happen in this, this week's one, but we've seen it earlier in this term um, in one or two cases. So, who knows? Maybe maybe it'll be a trend that uh, gains some traction as, as we go along. But Jimmy, I think that just about does it for us today. Um, as always, good chatting.
1: Thanks, Natalie. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in.
0: We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. We'd also like to thank special guest Marco Poggio. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere listed in podcasts. Just search Law360 the term. Thanks for listening.